I do have one beef with Susan about yesterday. She made me get off the equipment. She said, no adults. Anyways, that's all right. I probably would have injured myself anyway, so it's a good thing. Um, well, the book of Galatians, we have this week and next week, and then we're done. And this book has been, I think, absolutely pivotal um, in my life, just studying it in depth and teaching, and, and I think it's been pivotal for us as a church. The book of Galatians makes two amazing claims. One is that we can be connected with the real, risen, sovereign Jesus Christ. And two, that we, can, that we have the privilege of displaying him in and through our lives. We get to connect with Christ in the most startling way. It's not by bringing all of our goodness to him so as to earn the, the privilege or earn the, the ability to be connected with him. No, we get to connect with Christ by simple faith in his perfect law-keeping life done for us and his atoning death for us. And this is Galatians chapters 1 to 4. That's what, that's Galatians chapters 1 to 4 is, is all about that. And then having received Jesus by faith and being connected to him, we now have the privilege, this amazing privilege, of becoming more and more like him in our actual lives. Not by our own strength. Not by mustering up something that's innate in us or essentially ours, but in the strength of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And this is Galatians 5 to 6. That's what Galatians 5 to 6 is all about. This new life that we have in Christ. We do this, Paul uses two phrases, by walking by the Spirit or by keeping in step with the Spirit. Essentially, to keep in step with the Spirit is to do or is to, is to say yes to the Holy Spirit moment by moment in obedience to Jesus out of love for Jesus. It's to say yes to the Spirit moment by moment in our lives because we love Christ and out of obedience to Jesus. And rather than undoing our assurance of salvation, this actually increases it. I mean, if somebody were, were to come to me and they were a genuine believer, and I had confidence that they were, but they struggled really believing that they were saved, I would first and foremost point them to Jesus and the cross, something outside of them to put their trust in. And that's foundational, right? We have our assurance of salvation because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. But... This assurance, if it's like this, if it's like a cup, this assurance is filled up even more as we experience the life-transforming work of the Spirit in us, making us more like Christ in our actual lives, in the actual the way that we actually live and think and relate with others. This is where our text takes us today. Here's, here's the big idea in these five verses. Here's what Paul is communicating in these verses, uh, Galatians 6, 6 to 10. He's saying this, do good, you Christian, do good with inexhaustible energy to everyone, and especially Christians, as long as you live. That's what he's saying. Do good with inexhaustible energy to all people especially Christians, 
as long as you live. And I get this from verses 9 and 10. Let me just read them again. And let us not grow weary in doing good. I can hear my dad saying that. He said that all the time. We, we'd, we'd get together, elders and deacons meet together, and almost every other meeting, he would bring this up. Brothers, let's not grow weary in doing good. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those of the household of faith. Now, I am not saying, nor does this text say, do good in order to be saved. It doesn't say that. Do, it does not say do good in order to be saved. Rather, I am saying, and Paul is saying here, more importantly, Paul is saying, most importantly, God is saying, do good as evidence that you have been saved. And to display the one who has saved you. To put him on display. I love the way Paul makes this connection in another passage. In Ephesians 2, Paul says this, verses 8 to 10. These are, at least verses 8 and 9 are a couple of very well-known passages. Maybe you've heard these before. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's clear, right? We are saved by grace through faith. It's not of us. It's a gift of God. It's not of works so that no one can stand before God and boast in their works as the grounds of their salvation. No one can and no one will. But Paul doesn't end there. Paul says in verse 10, the very next verse, he says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are saved by grace through faith, and we are saved for good works. We are saved to do good. That's what we're saved for, is to do good to all people, and especially to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, this idea of we are being saved for good works is massively important, and here's why. The world, and, and, and quite frankly, some who would call themselves Christians and show up to church, they often or mostly see Jesus as remote. He's a long ways away. You know, he, he maybe lives in heaven, maybe lives like in the four walls of the church building, and maybe lives as a phantom in the hearts of people who have faith in him. But that's it. And we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, have the privilege and the responsibility of showing people what the real Jesus is like. You get that? You understand that? We have the the privilege, it is a privilege, a deep and wonderful privilege, and the responsibility of showing our brothers and sisters here and our neighbors and our family and people we just meet, people who know Jesus and people who don't, the privilege and responsibility of showing them what the real Jesus is. Jesus is actually like. He's not remote. He's not a phantom. He is living in us and through us by his spirit. Matthew, or, uh, Jesus says this in Matthew 5.16. He says, 
you know, a, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights up a lamp and puts it underneath a blanket or anything like that. And he says, therefore, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So we are to do good to all people in such a way that we want people to see it's a reflection of Christ and that they would give glory to our Father in heaven. Jesus gets more specific in John chapter 13 when he says, I, I give you a new commandment that you should love one another as I have loved you. Then he says this, by this all people will know that you are truly my disciples if you have this love for one another. So it's this visible love. It's a love that I don't just feel in my heart. Hopefully I feel it in my heart. But it, it works itself out in doing good. So that outsiders, other people would see it and say, wow, they must really be followers of Christ. So this command Paul gives us in this text is unmistakable and serious. Do good with inexhaustible energy to all people, especially Christians, as long as you live. And to get there, Paul takes us in three steps to, to this place, all right, to this exhortation. Three steps. Step one is he gives us a warning. Step two is he gives us a promise. And step three is the actual command and exhortation, which we're going to unpack a bit. So let me just take each one of these one step at a time. First step is a warning. And it is a serious warning. And it is a serious warning that Christians and certainly non-Christians alike ought to take very seriously and heed. We're not offended by strong words in the scriptures, are we? We live in an age where people are so easily offended. And sometimes even reading verses right out of the Bible will offend a professing Christian. I hope you're not offended by this. But I hope that you do take this warning very seriously. Verses 7 and the first part of verse 8 says this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. That's a serious warning. This warning starts with the startling words of verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Now remember, Paul is writing to a church. What's startling is that Paul is not addressing Christ deniers for their mockery of God and self-deception. Certainly the New Testament does address that. But Paul's not addressing those who say, the heck with God, the heck with Jesus. He's addressing professing Christians who ignore God, living for themselves, and says that they are self-deceived and mocking God. Paul says, don't do that. The phrase, do not be deceived, Paul uses this exact phrase in two other places in his letters. Both of them are in 1 Corinthians. One in 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul says, do not be deceived. And then he goes through this list of sinful 
behaviors and a lifestyle of sin and says, do not be deceived. These people, those who do these things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. And then he uses it in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Apparently, there is this tendency for Christians, and especially when Paul writes his book like Galatians, it's like free grace. Oh my goodness, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That it, it can, with people that aren't thinking clearly about it and aren't really rooted and grounded in Christ, lead to a kind of a moral, morally lax life. And Paul says, don't be deceived. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Don't you realize that whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. Just over a week ago, I think it was a week ago yesterday, for 38 agonizing minutes, Hawaii, the residents and visitors were terrified. You guys know what I'm talking about? They got, a, they got an emergency alert stating these words, ballistic missile Threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. And for 38 minutes, people were pulling their hair out and trying to figure out where's my kids, my family, where do we go, what do we do for 38 minutes. And people took that warning with total seriousness. And it ended up being a false warning. This is not a false warning that God has here. This is not a false warning. Notice three things about Paul's warning. First, Paul uses a helpful farming metaphor of sowing and reaping. If we plant corn in a cornfield, we would never expect to harvest wheat, right? Similarly, the actions of our lives are like planting seeds and the harvest we, re- we receive will be consistent with what we plant, right? Our, our, the, the, the direction of our life, what we're planting, the harvest we receive will be consistent with that. John Stott said, we cannot expect to reap the fruit of the Spirit if we do not sow in the field of the Spirit. Makes sense. If you sow to your own flesh, to your own sinful desires, if you live for yourself, fundamentally you will reap a harvest from the flesh. Namely, corruption. Notice something else though. Second, notice this warning is, I think, primarily against self-centered living. To live according to the flesh and to sow to the flesh is fundamentally self-absorbed living, self-centered living. And I see this in two places. One is the phrase, the one who sows these words, to his own flesh. This could be translated to himself, the one who sows to himself. One who's just sowing to himself will reap corruption. In other words, the one who sows to himself the one who lives for himself, the one who, it's all about him. He is the center of the universe. He or she will reap corruption. But also see how Paul contrasts sowing to the flesh and sowing to the spirit and the, the result, what that looks like on the ground. 
Sowing to the Spirit, Paul says, is an outward focus of doing good to others. So sowing to the flesh is an inward focus where we kind of almost turn in on ourselves, paralyzed by this self-absorption. Paul says it's deception. To claim Christ and live this way is to mock God. And the harvest one will receive is corruption. Third, third thing to notice from this warning. Notice it's not a warning that you will miss out on some blessings in this life, although that's certainly true. Paul's concern is much more serious and pressing than that. This warning has eternal consequences. Paul differentiates between the outcome of a life characterized by sowing to the Spirit and a life characterized by sowing to the flesh. If you sow to the Spirit, Paul says, you will reap eternal life. And if your life is characterized by sowing to the flesh, to your own flesh, to yourself, you will reap corruption. But I I think it'd be right to say eternal corruption. This word is translated in other places, destruction or perish or perishable. So if one sows to the flesh, to themselves, if this is what their life is characterized by, then they will receive eternal corruption. It is certainly true that a life sowing to the spirit will lead to peace and joy, while sowing to the flesh will lead to sorrow and misery. And we've all We've all, we've all tasted of both of those, right? We've all, we've all done something in the flesh and it's made us incredibly miserable. And we've all sowed to the spirit. We've all done something in the spirit and, and life and peace. Paul says this, the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. So it's, it's true that that's the case, right? We, a life lived sowing to the flesh will lead to sorrow and misery. Life lived sowing to the spirit will lead to life and, or joy, uh, joy and peace. But Paul's concern here in this text is that that is true eternally. Eternal joy and peace, eternal life, and eternal sorrow and misery, eternal corruption. That's what's at stake. There's a tendency to view salvation through faith in Christ as kind of like a movie ticket. Right? You, you pray a prayer or you know, maybe ask Jesus in your heart. You go to a meeting and have this uh, experience with the Lord. And, and I don't disparage any of those things. But then you, you got your ticket, you put it in your back pocket, and you go through life. And, and there's not really much thought about walking with the Lord, about being transformed into his likeness, about walking in the spirit. If, if you were to be asked, if you were saved, you would, you, would, you would rely upon the ticket. I got my ticket. I don't believe anyone can ever lose their salvation if they truly have it. However, the Bible is clear that one's life now in this world, in this, these 60 or 80 or 95 years that we have, 
we prove whether or not we actually have salvation. The way we live now shows whether, I mean, quite frankly, it shows whether we'd actually even want to be in heaven or not. Right? Heaven is not going to be about you and me. (laughs) I mean, it's just not. We're not going to be the center there. We're going to be enjoying Jesus. I mean, we'll be enjoying each other too. Don't get me wrong. So, listen to this warning. It is God's loving warning. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. But the next step Paul takes us to is, there's a wonderful promise here to hope in. We, we, this warning needs to be heeded, but then we need to hear this promise and get really excited about it. It could be a, a massive, glorious motivation for our lives. Verses 8, second part of verse 8 and verse 9, sowing to the Spirit is sowing with a view to a glorious future. That's what sowing to the Spirit is. Paul says, But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So sowing to the Spirit is sowing in hope or with the view of a wonderful, amazing, glorious future forever. If sowing to the flesh turns us in on ourselves in self-deception and self-absorption, sowing to the Spirit turns us outward to others in order to do them good. And Paul in this passage apparently wants us to know that this actually matters eternally. What we do in this life, our actions, our words matter forever. General Maximus and Gladiator. We don't have much in common with him theologically, but he did say one thing. That was good. He said he's getting his men ready for battle. They're going to go against the the Germanian barbarians. And he said this, what we do in life echoes in eternity. And that's true. What we do in this life matters for eternity. So keep in step with the Spirit. He's leading you to live a life of outward-focused love with every act that counts forever in the kingdom of Christ. Every single act counts forever in the kingdom of Christ. Check this out. I was reading in my, my time in this morning scriptures um, in Mark. Mark chapter 9, verse 41 says this. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I tell you the truth. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. A cup of water? That seems so insignificant. Jesus says it's not. It will be rewarded in eternity forever. Or Hebrews 6.10. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the labor that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. This is amazing. The, the smallest act of love, the smallest way that you serve here in Hebrews 6, the saints in his name is noticed by God. He doesn't overlook any of it. Every seemingly meaningless or insignificant thing done in his name for the good of others is noticed and is accounted for 
forever. We have some young, we have moms of young kids here. And we've had five kids in diapers. And uh, stay-at-home mothers or mothers who are changing like a gazillion diapers a day, sometimes you may think, is, does this have any significance? For like, Does this matter? I mean, I love my kids, but does this? It does. It matters. Done in the name of Christ. For his glory and out of love for the one you're serving, it matters to make a meal for someone, to pray for a stranger, certainly to share Christ with somebody, to help a friend in financial difficulty, loving the orphan, the widow, caring for an elderly mother matters forever. It's eternally significant. I'm going to take a step back just for a moment. Because of Christ alone and his finished work, and because we believe in him, we are connected with Christ. And this is like Galatians 1 to 4 again. And because of that, we stand now in the approval of God, now and forever because of Jesus. And that is a blessed truth. But... There's going to be a day when each one of us stand before Christ. And every genuine believer, every believer, everyone who's really been connected to Christ by faith and their lives have shown it, every one of them is going to hear audibly from the Lord Jesus, well done. And you know what? The well done is going to be in light of things that we have actually done. It's amazing. No one's going to be boasting there. No one's going to be like, yeah, I, I made it here because of. But he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Look at Matthew 25. He separates the sheep from the goats. He says to the sheep, enter the joy of your master. He's going to go, when I, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. You visited me in, the, in, in, in prison. All of these things. It's going to be because of things we have done. I can't wait for that day. I cannot wait for that day. And I think we need to have perhaps a perspective change. And Cindy shared, I'm not going to share the quote, but something from A.B. Simpson, a perspective change that, that standing before Christ in judgment is a sober reality. And all things are going to be brought out in the open, whether the things we've done in the body, whether good or bad. I mostly think of the bad. But what about the life sowing to the Spirit? Those things are going to be brought out as well, and they're going to be praised by our Lord Jesus. As imperfect as our good works are, And they are imperfect, every one of them. When done sincerely, with the help of the Spirit, they are pleasing to the Lord. And they are sowing to the Spirit, which will result in a harvest for eternity. It will result result in a harvest forever. 
For those who are not so short-sighted and earthbound, and and I need help with this because I can be short-sighted and earthbound, this is a wonderful promise that can give you a deep and powerful motivation to do good to everyone and especially to Christians as long as you live. Whoever plants seeds to the Spirit or keeps in step with the Spirit will from the Spirit reap a harvest of eternal life, not as the basis of your salvation, but as evidence that you have been saved. So we've been warned, serious warning. We've been given this great promise to hope in. And here's the third step. This is the commandment to obey. There's a commandment to obey. Verses 9 and 10. And let us not grow weary in doing good. Verse 10. And so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially those who are of the household of faith. This is where I get my main point. Do good, to every, do good with inexhaustible energy to all people, especially to Christians, as long as you live. To grow weary. Verse 9 says, do not grow weary in doing good. To grow weary means to have our strength sapped or dissolved or to weaken or to be exhausted. And Paul says, don't be exhausted in doing good. Don't be exhausted. Don't, don't weaken. Don't have your strength sapped in doing good. Don't run out of energy or weaken in doing good to others. In other words, do good with inexhaustible energy. For how long are we to do good? Well, thankfully, verse 10 tells us, it says, as you have opportunity, as you have opportunity, right? Now, I don't think opportunity here means when it's convenient or try to find time in your busy schedule or you probably don't have time right now. I don't think that's what Paul means. Of course, some have much more time available than others. But the Greek word Paul uses for opportunity is the word kairos, which is the same word translated season in verse 9. Now, when I talk of season, when I, when I use the word season, I can use that in different ways, can't I? I can speak of the seasons of our year, winter, spring, fall, and sum, summer and fall. I can speak of the football season. I can speak of a season of life that my family's in. We can use that word in different ways. And I think it's the same in the Bible. The word can be used, the the context helps define the meaning of the word. And I think that's what Paul has in mind here is as long as it's in season, as long as you have opportunity in that sense. And so let me ask you a question. What season of life could you legitimately say, you know, in this season... I'm committing to not doing good. I think I've just entered a season that I'm really just going to spend time sowing to the flesh in this season. Does that, doesn't that sound ridiculous? That sounds utterly ridiculous. I mean, we would never say that. And I think that's what Paul's point is. Of course, 
If you're in the hospital laid up with sickness, you can't do certain things. Of course, if you have five little ones at home, your, 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 your time is constrained, taking care of them all, much of your time. But, but we are all, as long as we are able, we are in the season of doing good. We are in the opportune time to do good. And I think that's Paul's point. As long as you are breathing and physically capable, it is the season to do good. Alyssa's grandma, Martha, um, I remember when we were first married and I would go down to Kansas City and spend Christmas. We would spend Christmas down there for a couple nights and she would tirelessly, I mean, this was probably 19 years ago now, 18, 19 years ago. She would tirelessly just serve and serve and serve. Well, now she's mid-90s and she can't do certain things. But it's amazing to hear from Alyssa when she comes back from visiting her grandma how her grandmother is still seeking to do good to Alyssa every time they're together. And that's how our lives should be. Now, who should we do good to? Well, we see the answer to that as well. Do good to all people, and especially those of the household of faith. That's what Paul says, right? So then, do good to all people, especially those who are of the household of faith or those who belong to Christ with you. There should be an attitude of doing good indiscriminately to whoever's in front of you, no matter who it is. If you are there and if you are able, you should do good to them. But, Paul says there should be special care for those who belong to Jesus with you. To those who are part of the family with you. So do good with inexhaustible energy to all people, especially to Christians, as long as you live. Or, I suppose I could have just read John Wesley and said, okay, we're done, go home. He says this, do good, excuse me, do all the good you can by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can. I'd put in parentheses there, especially Christians. But anyways, as long as ever you can. That's a life of sowing to the Spirit. There is not too much good, too many acts of love in the world. We're not, the world is not just like, man, we've got to stop doing so much good here. We've got to cut this out. There's not too much of that. So now is the season to do good because you are still alive. Now, this sermon, I think, would be incomplete if I ended here. And here's why. I said do good with inexhaustible energy. Anybody say, how do you do that? I don't have inexhaustible energy. I have very limited energy. Only, we can only do this with energy that comes from an inexhaustible source. God's inexhaustible grace through Christ is meant to fuel with nuclear power 
a life of obedience. And so, I want to end this way. You and I need for the good news of a good God doing massive good to undeserving people like us to go deeper into us in order for the inexhaustible grace of God to fill us and fuel us to do the good that he wants us to do. You need to understand and experience the inexhaustible energy of Christ in doing you good. How he's done good to you. Only when the Holy Spirit takes this truth and drives it deeper into your heart will you have the power to get outside of yourself and think of others and do them good. You might be more religious otherwise, but you won't be more Christ-like. And if you are motivated by the grace of God coming to you through Christ, this inexhaustible grace that's lavished upon you, like the Niagara Falls just dumped out upon you, you will do good with God-honoring motivation as well. Jeremiah 32 has this amazing promise. It's the only place in the Bible, I think, where it says God does something with all of his heart and all of his soul. And you know what it says? He does us good. He does good to his people with all of his heart and all of his soul. That's amazing. So let's just think for a few moments before we close. Think this morning, just just briefly, of all the good Jesus has done for you in the past. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life of goodness because you weren't good. And he did this for you so that his goodness could count as yours and give you perfect acceptance with God. That's justification by faith. We talked about that in Galatians 1, 2, 3, and 4. His goodness counted as ours so that we could have perfect acceptance, perfect approval with God on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. Christ did us good by going to the cross as our substitute, taking our place, taking our guilt and our sin and our shame in order to give forgiveness for all the times we have done the opposite of good when we have done evil. And when Jesus was on the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place. We deserved it. He took it. And he drank that cup of God's wrath all the way to the bottom. There is none left for those who are in Christ. You never, if you belong to Jesus, you never have to worry that he will pour out his wrath on you. That's what Christ has done. We could go on. That's what Christ has done for us. But let's think even further. What, has, what is Jesus doing now for us? Jesus is our good high priest. According to Romans 8 and Hebrews 7, he is right now interceding for his people 
day and night. He always lives to intercede for them. Always lives. That's what he lives for. Our good and sovereign friend, Jesus, is the one who works all things right now, presently works all things for our good and will let nothing to separate us from his love. That's what he's doing right now. You're going through what seems like hell on earth, deep valley. If you belong to Jesus, you, have, you can have confidence that he is working it for your good and that it will never separate you from his wonderful love. Jesus is our good and sufficient friend who is with us. He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will always be with you to the very end. And he's with us to help us and comfort us by his spirit. Let's go, let's even take it a step further. What, what is the good Jesus will do us in the future? So we talked about the past and the present. What about, what is, what is he going to do for us? Jesus is our good and gentle and strong shepherd who promises to keep us all the way to the end. If it was up to our strength, we would fail. We would. We wouldn't be able to keep ourselves to the end. But Jesus is a good and strong shepherd who will keep us. Jesus is our good bridegroom who will finish the work he started and he will make us ready and prepared to stand before him perfect forever. And doesn't this make every sacrifice, every loss suffered, every act of obedience done in his name totally worth it? Doesn't it? When we have a savior like this, who has done so much good for us, who is doing so much good for us, who promises to do so much good for us, don't we want to leave here and do good? I mean, in his name? Do you realize all the good that Christ has done, is doing, and will do on your behalf and for you? Has it sunk deep into your heart? If not, then today, just give in and believe it. Just totally surrender to it, okay? Just believe it. And if you do believe it, then take it deeper into your heart. Allow it to sink deeper into your heart. And then, and then, the, even, but, but allow it to happen right now. And then, then you're, you can leave armed, ready to do good with inexhaustible energy to all people, especially Christians, as long as you live. In order to display the risen Christ in the power of the Spirit, we are called to love as we've been loved. And to forgive as we've been forgiven. And to give as we've been given to. And to serve as we've been served. And to do good as the Lord has been so good to us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for your loving, stern warning. Your wonderful promise. And your command that you graciously enable us to obey, fueled by your grace and your spirit 
I pray that you would go with us now as we leave and that we would do so much good this week. Not, we, w- we wouldn't just, not in our own strength, in your strength, but we would do so much good and that we would see the things that we're doing that we didn't know if it was good, but you love it. It is good. You notice it matters forever. In Jesus' name, amen.